Um, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, and we are continuing um, in our series, The Moral of the Story. We've been looking at the parables of Jesus, and today we're going to tackle one that's a little more difficult. It's the parable of the ten bridesmaids, virgins or maidens, depending on which translation uh, you're reading. Now, let me just give you a, a fair warning this morning. I have a lot of information I'm pretty passionate about what I'm going to share today. Um, it's a lot of information in a short amount of time, so I need you to do me a favor. Buckle up and hang with me, okay? Because some of you are going to be like, you lost me. It's too much information. I promise you it's good stuff, and I really want us to grab hold of these encouraging, precious truths um, from God's Word today. Amen? Can you do that for me? Buckle up. Ready? Everybody alert? You got all your coffee? Oh, and... Um, confession, I've had a little bit too much this morning, so I'm a little jittery as well. So if I'm dancing across the stage, just give me some grace. Um, so let me tell you a quick story real quick to set the stage. Um, when I was growing up in Mangum, Oklahoma, 215 East Franklin Street to be exact, <clears throat> there's a little bitty house. I drive by there as an adult, and I'm like, how in the world did we all fit in that little bitty house? But we did, and on the front yard of that home was a plum tree. And I don't know if you like plums or not. I loved plum jelly, but we had this big plum tree. To me, it was big. I was a kid. Um, and, and so um, I just want to use that for a minute as an illustration. I want all of you to just envision that you're there with me. We're standing in the front yard. It's a small yard, but we're there. And we're looking at this plum tree. What do you see? Well, some of you might see the, the, the fruit, right? You're looking at the plum going, oh, those are some pretty plums. Those are some big plums. Some of you may be thinking, I wonder if there's any worms in those plums. Uh, others might be saying, hey, that's a big tree. Others might say, that's going to be a big mess when those things fall to the ground. You get a mow and you step on it. Done that's nasty, right? Some of you wonder, I wonder if the kids come by and steal those plums from that tree when they're not looking, you know? Uh, some of you, like me, maybe you see the switches that come off of that tree that would beat the snot out of you when you stepped out of line. The point I'm making is we have these different perspectives and these different interpretations of what we see and what we, we approach, right? And so um, we, we see many different things, different experiences, kind of give us a different um, view of what it is that we're looking at. And the same thing is true with Scripture, especially the parables. And so all of our walks of life, all of our experiences up to this point, we may look at the scriptures and we all come to it, see things differently. Um, and that's okay, but I want to just caution us that when we approach scripture, especially the parables, that we're careful not to try to put too much into it, right? That we don't try to, everything's got to mean something, symbolism and all that stuff. Usually in the teachings of Christ, the, the, the big idea or the moral of the story, if you will, is much more simple. It's maybe one or two big points. And so I want us to make sure that when we're reading through the parables, that we understand that we, we want to know what the big story is. What is it that he is trying to explain to us through this parable? And so let me also say this. I would ask you, because I know that when you get into the study of eschatology, the study of end times, many people um, disagree or stand in different areas of, of agreement on that doctrine. So let me just say this as a church. It's okay to agree to disagree. Amen? Amen? I mean, listen, we live in a culture where we'll fight over the dumbest things, right? Ford or Chevy. I mean, guys are ready to throw down the parking lot or Ford or, or Chevrolet. I'm like, when it comes to doctrine, we're going to have some ideas where may, you may not agree with me. I may not agree with you, but I love you. You're my brother. You're my sister. And it should be okay. So we should be able to agree to disagree with, uh, to disagree with grace with one another. Amen? Another thing that we should always be willing to do as followers of Christ, we should be willing to be challenged in our faith. Right? I mean, we were raised up a certain way. We were taught certain things. And as we approach Scripture, there's two different approaches. Number one, we could approach Scripture with our mind already made up, and we just look to the Scriptures to prove our point. That's called eisegesis, and that's not good. Right? When we go to the Scriptures with our minds made up, and we're trying to make it prove or, or defend our, our point and our doctrine, that's not healthy. We should approach it 
through exegesis where we go to the scriptures and we let it speak to us, what is it, God, that you want us to hear? So we should be willing to be challenged in our faith. God's word can handle it. Amen? It can stand. Um, but what it does for you is it will either change your position. Maybe you're like, hey, I've always believed this and apparently I was wrong. And you change your position or it'll embolden your position. You know what? I was glad I was challenged on that because it made me dig deeper and, and that's where I'm at. And so I will say this. That when it comes to eschatology, there are many people. Some, believe, some people believe in a rapture of the church. Some do not. Some believe that a rapture is before the tribulation. Some do not. Some believe it's midway. Some believe it's after um, the tribulation. But what we all agree on is Jesus is coming back. Amen? So that being said, let me just state my position up front, whether you like it or not. This is where I'm at. Is I believe and I hope in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. Now, I've got friends who will say, I just don't see it, brother. And I'm like... I see it, and I hope in it, and I'm praying for it, and you should too. And I hope that I'm right, and my friends will say, I hope you're right too. Because here's what I've learned. If you say, I don't believe in a pre-trib rapture, you're not going to complain if he picks you up early, church. Right? So that being said, we look at this parable. Um, excuse me. It's in the context of what is called the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is on the Mount of Olives. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. And on the way, he's just lambasted all the leaders. All the Pharisees, the Sadducees, he called them brood of vipers, you hypocrites. He's just laying it out to them. And he finishes by saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you know, the one that stones the prophets and kills the teachers, how I long to gather you like a, a, a hen gathers the chicks under its wings, but you weren't willing. And now your house is desolate, right? He's just said this, and the disciples were with Jesus like, what do you mean? And they point out to Jesus all the temples, the miraculous buildings around. Jesus, check this temple out. It's kind of big, isn't it? Jesus says, I tell you the truth, not one stone will lay on top of another stone. It's all coming down. Naturally, the disciples are going to go, when? Right? So they ask him two questions, and chapter 24 and 25 is this discourse called the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is responding to those two questions. Number one, when will these things take place, the destruction of the temple? And the second question, what is the sign that will signal your return? Because they absolutely did not question his return. They knew he would return, right? And what is the sign of the end of the age? So Jesus starts teaching. Now, here's where I, I really wrestled with, and I had, to, I had to just come to this realization. We live in 2022. We are 2,000 years removed from this teaching of Christ on the Mount of Olives. Jesus has not yet gone to the cross. The church has not yet been born. That's an Acts, right, when the church is born. And so for us, if we try to read these passages with our church filter, y'all, the glasses, we're going to read this and we're going to be asking ourselves some questions like, uh, hey, where are we at in this? How do we make this fit in our theology? And, and we're confused because we'll see things. We're like, what, what's up with the temple? We don't live there, right? The temple will be destroyed. What, what do you mean that if you're in Judea, flee? We don't live in Judea. We live in Texas, y'all. It doesn't say that there. Pray that your flight is not on the Sabbath. We worship on Sunday. So there's so many things that make it difficult for us to, to view this. And it's like just you wrestle with it and it's hard to understand. But when you realize that this was written... 2,000 years ago, and the audience was a Jewish audience. It's Jewish-centered, and you take off the church glasses for just a moment, and you put on your Jewish glasses, right? And you look at it in context. And not only through a Jewish filter, but through a Galilean Jewish filter. Why? Jesus was Galilean. The disciples were from Galilee. Two-thirds of the ministry in the Gospels happened in Galilee. Jesus spoke their language. Jesus would use things that they would grab a hold of and understand, and so a lot of influence from the Galilean culture is found in scriptures, all right? 
So when you put on your, 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 your Jewish glasses and you look at it through that filter, much more of the things that I struggled with in the past start to make sense. In fact, almost all of it does. I got one area that I'm still struggling with, which is not a point of the message today, but, but it's just what I'm saying is so much more makes sense. Are you with me so far? All right, so in chapter 24, Jesus is teaching what we believe is the great tribulation period. And if you want to do this later, go home and grab your Bible, Revelation chapter 6. And when it talks about breaking the seals open, and you parallel that with chapter 24 of Matthew, you'll see a lot of parallels there that are going on. So we look at this and say, this is obviously Jesus is talking about the end times, the time of the great tribulation. And then you get to chapter 25, and he tells the parable. Okay, so now I've heard preachers that will preach the parable as though it's to the church. And I've heard them say, no, this is not the church. And after much, much study and listening to a bunch of people, reading a bunch of people, I've come to the conclusion, I don't know. I'm playing. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm only playing. So here's what I believe. I really still believe in chapter 25, this is not speaking of the church, but it's still speaking of those in that time after the tribulation. Let me show you why. Verse 25, let me, let's go ahead and read the parable real quick, okay? Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, there was a, they were roused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. All the brides, things in your name, he says from them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Not that I once knew you, but I never knew you. And so there's a time coming when that will be exposed. The difference is between those who profess and those who are genuinely believers in Christ. So there's the similarities and the differences. All right. Another one that is interesting is the bride grooms, or excuse me, the bridesmaids um, had the oil. The five foolish ran out, and they said, hey, give me some of your oil. Their response in verse um, 8 was, or excuse me, 9, but the others replied, we don't have enough for all of us. Go to the shop and buy some for yourselves. And so, you know, practically speaking, it would make sense that they do the selfless thing and say, hey, let's share some of my oil with you so that you have enough and I have enough. But that's not where the parable is going. It's teaching us a spiritual truth, and that is our readiness cannot be transferred to someone else. Right? Their readiness could not be transferred to someone else. In the same way, when it comes to Christianity in this age of grace, our faith cannot be transferred to other people. Don't you wish it was? Because if it was, let me tell you what I would do. I place my faith in Christ, and I have this just confidence that he's able to do what he's told me he would do. And guess what? I'm going to get my family in on the family plan. Right? And like, guys, don't worry about it. You're all good. You're covered because of my faith. It doesn't work that way. And we can't transfer our salvation experience or our faith onto our kids, just like we can't receive it from our loved ones. Like, my grandma was a rock star, and God's like, that's great. She was, but I'm not looking at her. I'm looking at you. It's a personal relationship, a personal decision that you have to make yourself. It's not transferable. Do you hear that, church? So please understand this, that going to church doesn't get you there. Tithing doesn't get, get you there. Doing good deeds doesn't get you there. The only thing that makes you right with God is by placing your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is to personally accept the invitation. So it's non-transferable. Here's another truth that we need to know that's there, and it'll be true of us in this church age, is that lost opportunities can't be regained. The door was shut. The time to be prepared was yesterday not now and so preparedness tomorrow is eternally too late right 
Tomorrow's preparedness is eternally too late, and so the time to prepare is now because there's an opportunity that will close, and once it closes, it will not be regained. There's not another opportunity. And so he warns them, hey, listen, the door was shut, signifying that it will not be open. You're locked out. And they're like, open the door. And he says, I don't know you. There's a close to that, that time and the tribulation, and the door will be closed. The same thing is true of the church age. We know not the time, the day, or the hour, but we know that one day it's all going to close. It's coming to an end. And once that day is closed and that door is closed, the opportunity from there forward is not the same, right? And we, following eschatology, we feel like that after the rapture of the church, <clears throat> there's a time of tribulation. And so you reject it now, you, you'll spend a time through the tribulation. And that's not going to be an easy cakewalk. So for you, me, for all of us, it would benefit us to say, you know what? Today is the day of salvation. I trust in him today. Amen? So lost opportunities can't be regained. When that door is shut, it's too late. And the warning that he gave them, I think, is also true of us that are hearing the gospel today. So you too must keep watch. For you do not know the day or the hour of my return. So what is the moral of the story? It's really simple. Be prepared. Keep watch. Be ready. For us today in the church age, the same thing is true. It's like, hey, we are ready. We we need to keep watch. Be vigilant because... Christ will return. Let me give you a couple statistics. I think this is so, so sobering, and I I feel this just weight for us today in our generation and in this urgency to reacquaint people with the truth that Jesus is going to come again. And here's why. Some of the research I saw in, I think it was Barna, um, it was Lifeway and the Pew Research, they did some different surveys, and in that they discovered that 80% of the people surveyed no longer believe that the Bible is the complete word of God. Did you hear that? In our culture today, 80% of the people don't believe that this is the complete word of God. It doesn't mean that they reject it totally. It just means that they don't, it's not sufficient. There's probably some other books that we could put with it because it's not all truth. And the word is all truth. But 80% today polled said that they didn't believe that the Bible is a complete word of God. That's a problem, isn't it, church? Here, here's another one that's even more sobering. He said he asked them directly the question, do you believe the world will end in your lifetime? When I was a kid, it felt like that was just a common knowledge with everybody. It didn't matter. They're like, oh, yeah, it's going to come. It's going to come. I don't know how, who, what, and all that stuff, but we know the world's going to come to an end. This poll was asked, and they said, do you believe that the world will end in your lifetime? Over 80% said no. Now, the reason that's a big deal, Second Peter 3, 3, 4 says, most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, church, hello, we're here scoffers will come mocking the truth that's not all the truth they'll mock the truth and following their own desires they will say what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again my grandpa was talking about that my grandma was talking about that he didn't come then right they're scoffing what will happen, he says, from before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created Peter said that's what it would be like in the last days I think we're there church And I think that there's an urgency for the church to be able to talk about, hey, listen, the world that we're living in, it's going to come to a close. Are you ready? There's an urgency there that we should be serious about and just kind of go through life like, because he said, as it it was in the days of Noah, so it will be when the Son of Man comes. They'll be eating, drinking, they're doing their thing until Noah was taken in the ark and it said, and destruction came on them immediately. 
So I don't say that to scare you, but it is the truth of Scripture, and the good news is God's made a way for us to be sheltered from, protected from that. Amen? Okay, so how do we prepare? For the, the Jews during the tribulation, they have to endure to the end. Those who endure to the end will be saved, okay? But for those of us in this age of grace, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. Amen? So listen, how do we prepare? We place our faith in Jesus. That's why you hear us say all the time, the most important decision you make in life is what do you do with the gospel of Jesus Christ? So watch this, church. This should get you encouraged. When you say, Jesus, I trust you. I repent of my sins. I believe that you're the son of God, that you died on the cross and was raised on the third day. And I'm trusting in you for salvation to make me right with God. Jesus, the bridegroom, stands before the witnesses at the gate and he opens the covenant, his, his father, and he says, here's the conditions of the covenant. Will you honor this? And Jesus says, done deal. Fulfilled. And, and for us, it's a new covenant, right? It's a new covenant, and he says, yes, I'll honor that. He's given a very costly dowry. What was that price that Jesus paid? His life, his blood. He gave it all to purchase us as his own bride in his possession, right? He even gave us gifts. So while we're waiting for his return, that we would think of him and, and see his love for us as we look at the gifts that he's given us, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that we can just operate in those and, until he returns again. How cool is that? And Jesus takes the cup. Listen, he offers that cup. And up until that point, before we say, yes, Lord, I mean, he's given the invitation, and he extends the cup to you. And the question is, have you, will you drink from the cup? Because at that moment, you're in control. There's some free will here. It's like he, he does all this and prepares. He sets it up beautifully. And then he says, okay, now it's your turn. Will you be mine? And you can choose to reject the gospel or you can choose to accept the gospel. So when we accept Christ, it's like we sipped the cup. And that solidified the covenant between the groom and the bride. Church, that gets me stoked. You know why? What's this? Is Jesus coming back? That's not the question. Why is he coming back? Because I'm his bride. I sipped the cup. Have you sipped the cup? Then the encouragement for you today would be this. Hey, my beloved is coming back. One day, he's coming back for the church. We're in that betrothal period where we're waiting for the bridegroom to return. And church, he's going to return. And will he find us ready? The way we're ready is by placing our faith in Christ Jesus. When we do that, folks, listen, let me tell you, this is so cool. The Holy Spirit is what a guarantee. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 5 and 2 Corinthians eleven two, 2, he, God, has identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything that he has promised. John 14, he said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there's many rooms. If I go, he says, I'm going to go there and prepare a place for you as the bridegroom. Right? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself. That where I am, in my Father's house, there you will be also. Isn't that cool? Ah, oh, church, what a beautiful picture in that Galilean wedding of the commitment and the communion between. In fact, we're going to observe communion in a couple weeks. Every time we lift that cup, do you know that that confirms the new covenant between the bride and the groom? 
How cool is that? And so let me, one more passage and then we'll, and then we'll close. One of the very popular ones that's <clears throat> used in the rapture of the church, and some say, no, that's, that's not really the rapture of the church, but listen to what he says. So those that have placed their faith in Christ, they're the bride of Christ, and so they had zero doubt, the Galileans, the, the disciples had zero doubt that Jesus um, wouldn't, or that they, they knew he would come back. They were absolutely convinced Jesus is coming back. They believed him. There's no doubt. He was using that imagery of a Jewish wedding. He's got to come back for the bride. Right? He's betrothed. He's promised. So he's got to fulfill that promise. He's coming back. So then, in the process of time, some of the believers were dying. And so the people in Thessalonica started writing out to Paul saying, hey, so what, what gives? What about our loved ones that are dying? They're, they're waiting on this hope for Christ to return. In the meantime, they're dying. What happens to them? He says this, and now, dear brothers and sisters, we do not want you to, uh, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died. So you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe, did you hear that? We believe that Jesus died and was raised again. That's the gospel. And because of that, we believe that God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still alive when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be harpazo, caught up. Pastor, the word rapture is not in the Bible. It's in the Latin translation of the scriptures. But the idea of harpazo is absolutely there. You know what it means? To snatch away violently. Do you know, and, and violently by like, quick. Do you know in their culture that the groom didn't know the day? He had to wait for his father to say, okay, now, son, go get your bride. And they would go and snatch their bride away. And it's beautiful imagery. He says, we tell you this directly, <clears throat> excuse me, he says, they will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. Encourage each other. That's good news, right? That the bridegroom is coming back for the bride, church. Good news. So encourage each other with these words. He's coming. He's coming again. He's coming again for his bride. Chapter 5. Now concerning how and when all this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write to you. For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. When people, some translations say when they, when they are saying everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin and there will be no escape. But you, do you hear it? Do you see the difference in the pronouns? You, 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 we, and they, them. And he's back to you. He says, but you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. Why? For you are all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to the darkness and night. So be on your guard, not asleep like the others. Stay alert and be clear-headed. Not as the time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk, but let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love. And listen to this, wearing our helmet as our helmet, the confidence of our salvation. I love that. There was a season in my life when I was not confident in my salvation. But through some challenging, some dear friends of mine, through the scriptures, I dug and I dug and I went to the scriptures and I went to God. And over time, after revealing these and looking these, I'm like, I know whom I have believed in. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. That's confidence in salvation. Not in my ability to hold on to it, but his ability to keep me. Amen? So... 
For God chose to save us through the Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us, not to pour out his wrath on us. Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive, when he returns, we can live with him forever. So encourage each other and build each other up just as you are already doing. Church, are you ready? Are you ready? You may be here today and you're like, man, I just, I've been kicking the tires. I don't know. I just want you to know that the opportunity is limited and that time of opportunity is going to come to a close. So today is the day of salvation. And maybe you're here and you're like, hey, I've placed my faith in Christ. And this is super encouraging to me because when I said I do, it's like I sip the cup and it sealed the deal. And I have this confidence that he promised he's going to come back for me and he's going to do it. And so praise Jesus. I'm just waiting for him to come back. Amen? Now here's a question, or excuse me, um, a, a warning to the church. In that interim time betrothal between the wedding feast and all the other stuff that happened, there was like a year's time. The groom had a job. His job was to go and make the place ready. That's Jesus, right? He's making a place ready for us. And he's going to come back. He's preparing everything. The bride also had a job. Her job was getting the, the wedding garments ready, right? She had to be prepared all the time. And so she had bridesmaids that always attended to her, and she was always ready, spotless, ready to go. At the moment's notice, she had to be ready. I, I don't imagine she was sleeping in a wedding gown. I don't know, maybe. But she was always ready because he could come at any moment. Church, that's our responsibility, Right? We're waiting for the bridegroom to come, and we need to be prepared. I think of the word sanctification there. It's like we're growing in our faith. We're purifying ourselves through the word, right? And we're growing. And so that when Christ returns, we are presented to him as a spotless bride. And I'm thankful that we've been made righteous by the blood of Christ. That it's not by works that we're saved, but it is all, it's all him, church. It's all a gift of his grace. We just simply accept the cup. Amen? So my encouragement to you today is there's hope if you've placed your faith in Christ if you've placed your faith in Christ he will return again to receive you to himself that where he is there you will be also and will forever be with the Lord that's good news church but the reality is there's a lot of people on this planet that aren't ready maybe some in here today maybe some in your family we know that our, our world has just gotten crazy the scoffers come and so how much more important is it for us in this day especially to tell people that Jesus is coming. Now listen, the scoffers are there. And they're going to mock you. Oh, here we go with that old message again. Jesus is coming. Woo, the sky is falling. But it's truth. It's coming, and we need to be talking about it, church. Amen? Are we ready? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge in your word. Thank you, Lord, that we can't wrap our minds around how awesome, Lord, your plan for us is. And when I just think about that bridegroom, bride, and that Galilean wedding, Lord, I just get pumped at how you were using something that was so familiar to your disciples in that moment to lay out a truth for them to follow and to see in the end times. And, Lord, just to look at how that even applies to us today, you're just amazing. And so my, my prayer, Lord, is that you would open our eyes, as I said earlier, to your truth. Father, that we would respond to your invitation for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, you said, shall be saved. Lord, you do give us a free will, the choice to reject or accept your offer of salvation. And I pray that today everyone in this room has accepted that offer. Lord, but if they're here today and they've not, I pray that they would sense the urgency. I pray that they would sense the imminent return of you coming back for them and for your your. Your bride. And so I pray, God, that today would be the day of their salvation. Lord, for Lord, the rest of it, we leave it in your hands. We don't have it all figured out. I'm not a theologian. I'm not a scholar. But, God, I trust you and your word. And I trust your promises most of all. 
And so I thank you for the promise that you will return for those that are a part of your bride, the church. And Father, all I can say is to, to you and you alone belong all the glory. So Lord, would you just please encourage us today in our faith. Help us to sense the urgency and to respond to you however you may want us to respond. I humbly ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.